When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is Bake from Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation continues to be a source of conflict across the country. We discuss the week's developments and share my conversation with California congressional candidate Jessica Morse. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We so appreciate you sharing Pantsuit Politics with friends. That is absolutely the best way to grow our audience. When people hear from people they trust, this is a good place to spend their time. They usually listen. And we especially appreciate all the messages we get that say, I took the person's phone. I showed them how to hit subscribe. So please keep doing that. Please share the podcast on social media. The more people who come to this conversation, the better the show will be. Republican senators... And the people representing Dr. Christine Blasey Ford seem to be engaged in a game of chicken, as best I can tell, in which she has said, I am not going to come sit at a table with Brett Kavanaugh and talk about the ways in which he assaulted me. I want an FBI investigation. And they are using that as a, they just want to stall. This was all a political ploy all along to, and we're just going to keep pushing forward with the vote. Now, are they saying that Kavanaugh will come talk about it even if she doesn't show up or if he she doesn't show up, he's not going to show up either? That's what I haven't figured out yet. Everything that I've read has indicated that he will speak to the committee regardless. 
I should also say, though, this situation could change dramatically in the next 24 hours, right? Absolutely. So it's, it's hard. We're recording on Thursday morning. Who knows what will take place by Monday? First of all, she's right. She should not be required to come sit at a table with him and talk about this and engage in this sort of public trial. The other thing that I think is really important is there was an FBI investigation during the Anita Hill hearing. I think the hypocrisy of saying you're just trying to stall after stalling Merrick Garland for over a year is really, really difficult to stomach. And I also read one of my law professors talking about like the the FBI investigation is really smart because then you would be, as opposed to just talking about memory or whatever, like there, it, it would push the situation into which either party would have to be lying under oath. And that's that's a whole different ballgame, which I hadn't really thought about. It sort of raises the stakes on which either side says. I mean, I believe her. I don't think she's lying. We had a listener who made a really good point, which was, if she was lying, why would she have brought up Mark Judge to begin with? Why would she say there's a third person in the room if she was lying? That's just an... That's an like an immediate person that can say, no, that didn't happen. You know what I mean? Like, I thought that was a really good, why would she even say there was a third person there if she was just trying to make all this up? And I think that at first they seemed so, their story was alternating rapidly until they sunk their claws into this whole idea of like, she won't come. Because it was like, well, there was some, there was like this narrative about horseplay for a hot minute. And there was some really problematic narratives around whether he remembered or whether he didn't remember and w- they were struggling at first. And now I think they're, they're putting all their chips on this play of she's just trying to stall. We don't need an FBI investigation. I don't know who's going to blink first. I guess I'll, I guess that's what I'll say. I would like to know what offense would cause everyone to say, we need the FBI to get involved. If this one does not, yes. what would mm-hmm. he have to be accused of to slow this train down? I'm asking that earnestly. Yeah. Because I'm I'm watching this conversation play out. And I think for so many people, they get personally wound up about this because it is tied up in their individual conception of fairness. Mm-hmm. You hear it over and over. He's worked so hard to earn this seat. Okay, that's not a Please. thing. But that is our attitude. A lot of us have that attitude in America, right? If I work hard enough, then I've earned something and I'm entitled to it and no one should be able to take it away from me. And I think we're all, some of us, are juxtaposing that experience onto this situation. And others of us are remembering a time, perhaps as women, when something has happened to us that is unfair and we're juxtaposing that onto this situation, right? So it's not it's not wrong to bring our life experiences to what's happening. If you are in that space of this seems so unfair to me that somebody can work their whole career to get something and now he's almost got it and someone's going to yank it away. If that's your framework, tell me what would be serious enough to have it yanked away. Mm-hmm. I just, I want to know. If this had happened last year, would that be different? The, the problem is what that they're not seeing it as an accusation of sexual assault and that's serious enough to slow the train down. They don't see it as an accusation of sexual assault. They see it as an unfair lie, right? They're not even 
They're not even entertaining the thought that this could be true. This is this is an attempt to. It's a you know it's just a lie. So, so that's if, why they don't see it as worthy of of slowing the train down because they think it's a lie. And I just want to understand: Would anything be a lie? Would mm-hmm. if if his um, law school came out and said we think that he cheated on an exam? Would that be worth if it was a liberal law? If it was a liberal law school, yep, it'd be a lie for sure. You know, I just I want to understand where do we have any kind of willingness to pull back on this presumption that he's qualified to be nominated? Because I woke up this morning thinking about Harriet Myers and how I do not remember this presumption of confirmation with her from from Republicans. Right. I don't remember this idea that she really deserves this. And how dare anybody take it away by questioning her qualifications? I just, you know, I was young, so perhaps I'm forgetting. My recollection of that scenario is that Republicans were happy to jump ship with her, too. Well, and can I just say something? This is probably going to be a little bit controversial, but I just feel like I might buy that narrative a little more with someone like Clarence Thomas. But this dude was born on third. That's what's so gross about this whole narrative. Like you were reading some things from Politico this morning about the K Street lawyers, this elite group of Washingtonians who really just feel like they need to protect their own, who don't usually speak out about these controversies. That's what grosses me out so much about this. It's not like this dude like rose up from poverty. He was born into an elite group of people. And now he's trying to take an elite position that he's been being groomed for his whole life. In what universe is this something that's like, oh, well, man, he just hard scrabble, fought his way to the top. Give me a break. And here's something else when we were discussing the morning news that I would like to talk about. You were reading a HuffPost piece about his reputation for wanting his law students and law clerks. Let me correct that. His female law students and law clerks to dress in an outgoing manner. And as you were reading that, I thought, of course, of course there's more. Now, I'm not saying that Brett Kavanaugh has been sexually assaulting people, you know, Harvey Weinstein style, since this happened in high school. I'm not saying that. I think there is a sense for a lot of people that a sense of outrage that men can reach that level and still behave so openly in a criminal way. I certainly have it. We like to tell ourselves in the United States that the people at the top, are it's a meritocracy, and that the people at the top really are the smartest and work the hardest and deserve to be there. You can hear this with Brett Kavanaugh. And sometimes they get there and they are criminals like Les Moonves or Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein and predators. But even in a much less aggressive stance where we're not talking, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is accused of sexual assault, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that he was a serial, serial sexual assaulter throughout his adult life. However, you read that article and I thought, of course, because even if that's not true, the narrative you have to craft for yourself to continue through your adult life after doing something like this would, it's like, I just see it as like tentacles of patriarchy squirming their way throughout our brains. And I mean men and women's brains. This stuff surface and manifests and sometimes very physical acts. But the stories we all tell ourselves are soaked 
and these cultural messages. And we think they're personal and we think they're justified or they're individualistic, but they're not. I mean, I think that so often they just worm their ways into so many things, like the fact that you would tell female law students and law clerks to dress differently to please him. You know, I don't think Brett Kavanaugh believes himself. I mean, I might could be wrong, but I'm sure his narrative, his conscious narrative is he has little girls and he talked about his mom and that he's just really supports women. I believe he believes that. I also believe that the human brain is very complex and capable of some very, very intense gymnastics. And to grow up like he grew up, to do what he did to Dr. Ford, it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't something he forgot. Or even if he did, there was a lot of subconscious things going on throughout his whole life, I believe, in what in the stories he told himself to just you just have to know you like to to live in this society with the with the as a woman with the messages we receive but i think this is also true in the messages we tell men and the toxic masculinity we all exist in it's going to it's going to bubble up in a lot of different ways i guess is what i'm saying which wouldn't matter enormously for a whole lot of jobs mm. but it matters enormously for the job of being a justice on the united states supreme court Mm-hmm. And what really troubles me about the, I'm just going to call it the meritocracy line of thinking, that the people who are stuck in, he earned this, he deserves it, how can anybody be trying to take it away from him? What troubles me about that line of thinking with respect to this position is it's a hell of a gamble because there is no accountability for this position. If you look at Eric Greitens in Missouri, he couldn't be the governor with an accusation, a very serious one, hanging over his head, and arguably on a scale of, you know, zero to 10, Greitens would have fallen somewhere below what this story about Brett Kavanaugh is. What he did was wrong and awful. I did not read it as this kind of assault. And he couldn't be the governor, because even if he vehemently denies it, There is a public trust necessary to a position like that of the governor that he didn't have anymore. And a governor can be defeated in the next election cycle. That doesn't happen with a Supreme Court justice. I said on Twitter yesterday, you know, Lindsey Graham has been quoted everywhere as saying, basically, it's okay for Trump to fire Jeff Sessions after the midterms because Trump deserves to have an attorney general in whom he has confidence. The American people deserve to have a Supreme Court justice in whom we have confidence. That doesn't mean that every single one of us align with his judicial philosophies. We don't have these kinds of questions about Neil Gorsuch, though. We don't have these kinds of questions about Sonia Sotomayor. For better or for worse, we've entered a new stage. And, you know, if you're playing along with your paint suit politics, everything, you know, Watergate bingo card, fill in another square. I think since Watergate, we, the public trust has changed. You know, we don't have, it's like we have not, we have passed this point of no return where if the stakes are high enough, there is no accusation bad enough 
to violate the public trust because we have abandoned the idea that our representatives, be it in any of the three legislative branches of our government, represent everyone. Because now we don't live in a democracy. We live in a war zone where the other side is the enemy. And if you have the best general, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they do in their personal lives or what crimes they commit on the war field because the other side is the enemy. And so you can justify anything. Donald Trump gives no impression that he represents every American. He is unapologetic in the way that he talks and the way that his administrative officials talk, that he only represents people who voted for him. He only represents his side in this war. I feel like that's where we are, and that's what's happening here. It doesn't matter because he's our guy, and the stakes are so high, and the other side is so bad that it doesn't matter. That's what you saw with Roy Moore. Did you see over and over again? Because we're not talking about it as if there's public trust important in a democracy. We're talking about it like it's a battle between each other. Well, I hope that Roy Moore is instructive to the people making decisions right now because he lost. Mm-hmm. He lost in a place where the chances of him losing were awfully low because we've had enough of all of this. We've had enough. I don't understand what anyone thinks is to be gained for the Republican Party by having someone like Chuck Grassley ask Dr. Blasey Ford about what happened to her when she was a teenager. How does any, just on a purely political level, how does anybody think that's going to play? We're going to do Anita Hill again with a lot of the same characters who are much older now. After a year in which our daily headlines have been about gross abuses of power, does anybody think this is a good idea for Republicans? And the other thing I've been thinking about so much with this whole issue is that there we don't have a good way to do this because it's a horrific thing to ask any woman to sit in front of or a man. This, I mean, can you imagine if a man came forward and said that a Supreme Court nominee had sexually assaulted him and then Lord. had to sit in that judiciary room and talk about it? This is a horrible forum to talk about these things. We, we have to do better than this for everyone involved in the process. This whole idea that Republicans, what, what the Senate Judiciary leadership is doing right now is exactly what Megan Garber wrote about in that Phantom Reckoning article that we read last time. It's pretending to have a level of contrition and empathy, but marching forward on schedule anyway. It is exactly the Phantom Reckoning. We want to hear her story. No, you don't. You know how horribly it would play if you heard her story and tried to knock it down. So what you hope is that you force her into a completely untenable situation. Then you can walk away from it and say, well, we tried. What -hmm. are you going to do? And you think the women of America are going to take that sitting down? Absolutely. I, I think this is politically the worst way they could be handling this, not to mention morally and ethically. You know, I think the only way to see your way out sort of that outside of that 
war frame of mind is often to really focus on the impact of the next generation. And I understand how both sides can get caught up in beating each other. But we all have children and we all see children and we all want what's best for the next generation and the impact on them. And I cannot fathom what it must be like for teenage girls all over this country who we all know statistically are being sexually assaulted right now, this week, today, as we talk about this, and watching a national headline that says, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Doesn't really matter. It's not that important. If enough time passes, what happened to you today doesn't matter. And it's certainly not important enough to derail a man's career. Can you fathom what that must feel like as a teenage girl right now? Or it doesn't matter because of who told me or when they told me. Or when I found out. We had an email from our listener, Obi, that was just beautiful and thoughtful. And, And he said, I'm writing this out of a mixture of feeling hopeless and desperate for society as well as our politics. As I read and listen to more details about the accusations against Brett Kavanaugh and see the quickening pace at which stories like this one are brought to fruition, I feel more and more alone as a man in the way these men handle responsibility. What struck me about this story in particular is how Kavanaugh immediately denied the accusations. I sit here thinking, how can this man who was accused of a heinous act while intoxicated just so blatantly say, nope, never happened, without thinking even for a second, oh God, if what she is saying is true and I never understood the impact of what I might have done, I need to do everything in my power to make this situation better for her, for myself, for the American people who are looking to me right now. Why is it that every story like this we hear, whether it be through Me Too or even the ones we hear in our personal lives, never include the accused taking personal responsibility at the moment of accusation? And I think that is such an important question. Just pausing for yourself and saying, maybe this happened differently than I remember. Maybe my actions impacted someone else in a way that I didn't understand at the time, and I am sorry. I think Obi makes a really great point, and it is encouraging to me that men are out there thinking this way. It is also encouraging to me to think about women taking action and stepping up into leadership roles. So if you are feeling a little depressed with us this morning about Brett Kavanaugh, and I will admit, I'm a little depressed this morning. I think I'm going through stages. I was angry. Now I'm a little bit down. There'll be a new stage. (laughs) I'm just camped out in anger. I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) But if you are feeling that, stay tuned for the next segment, because I am talking with Jessica Morse, who is running for Congress in California. Jessica Morse is such an impressive candidate. And when I picture a Congress that includes people like Jessica, like Amy McGrath, like Stephanie Rose Spaulding, I feel a lot better. So stay with us. Feel a lot better before we wrap up today. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. 
and they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. I'm here with Jessica Morse, candidate for Congress in California, who has an amazing background that I cannot wait to get into with her. Jessica, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Beth. Really a pleasure to be here. Tell our listeners about your national security experience and all the things that you've done in your life that make you, I think, a really unique candidate for Congress. Sure. I actually spent 10 years all over the world with the um, State Department, Defense Department, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Um, It's funny. I started my career out at age 23 at the height of the war, um, was started with USAID in what was supposed to be a desk job in Washington, and then my counterpart in Baghdad was injured, and so they asked me to go over. And so I had this, you know— sort of rather comical conversation with my poor mother saying, Hey mom, I'm going to Baghdad. And, um, 
And I told her, it's, it's for your own spiritual growth, mom. And then off I went and I was uh, on the ground for a year and a half, 05 to 07, um, and really saw the rise of the insurgency and was standing side by side with our troops every day. And it was just a foundational experience in my career. And, you know, every day when I was in Iraq, I was seeing essentially the consequence of politicians having made short-sighted decisions that got them through the next political cycle or got them a political cheer line. And when I came home, I was seeing that play out on the ground. I was talking to some of my cousins and one of my cousins was telling me they were talking all about WMDs and who had lied about them. And the other was talking about the Saddam Hussein trial and the newfound freedom of the Iraqi people. And neither of them were really talking about what we were seeing on the ground, which was the rise of an insurgency. And and I thought, well, I, I turned to them and I said, you can't see the whole picture. You can't see the problem. Why it's so critical that we have nuance, why it's so critical that we have depth in our discussions. And that was a foundation throughout, throughout the rest of my career, um, being able to really look through the depth of an issue. I later worked on uh, the foreign aid budget for Iraq at the State Department for a few years. I'd been one of the only people with that le level of firsthand experience on the ground. I had In Iraq, I had traveled around the whole country and seen um, our programs firsthand. And so being able to um, articulate that and see what we needed to do to shift around the surge was really critical. Um, understanding how uh, insurgency networks were working and terrorist networks were working on the ground and using um, development and aid as a tool to undermine them uh, was really effective. And then I studied at Princeton uh, for my master's. I focused on nuclear nonproliferation, which was great. I like to think of Princeton as, uh, you know, Disneyland for nerds. And, um <laughs> And then uh, out of that, I had focused my thesis on uh, the U.S.-India nuclear deal. And so I was hired by U.S. Pacific Command um, as an advisor uh, to the Admiral on U.S.-India nuclear strategy and, um, and U.S.-India defense strategy. And for me, that was one of the most fascinating sort of moments in my career because we were at this interesting point where we were trying to strengthen the U.S.-India defense relationship and we were hitting roadblocks and we couldn't understand why India wasn't wanting to work with us, you know, why they weren't partnering with us on patrolling Somali pirates in the Indian Ocean or um, working on uh, preparations for the next tsunami so that they could be the first responders and in, in, in partnership with our Marines and, um, or another natural disaster. And they just, they just weren't coming to the table and we weren't sure what was going on. So, uh, the Admiral sent me over to India to check it out. And I started asking around and discovered that the officials we were working with were elected officials from states that were anti-American. And, and I thought, oh, they are doing this because they need a political win. And so I asked myself, I said, what would give these officials a political win for working with America rather than having working with America be a political obstacle for them? And I discovered that India was in need of, um, you know, renewable of, of energy sources. They were having um, stagnation in rural job economies and, uh, and they were having invasive species problems. They had a particular problem with a plant called water hyacinth that was just choking out the local economy. And so when I came back to Pacific Command, I discovered that we had the technology to turn water hyacinth into a biofuel. 
And so I spent about six months developing a strategy that used uh, renewable energy technology transfer that our Navy and different branches had developed um, as a carrot to get Indy to the table and to work with us and give them the tools they needed um, to be effective domestically um, and give us a win um, by establishing a partnership, you know, with, um, renewable energy with India over there and, and opened up a lot of doors, but it was funny because I, uh, you know, it, it, I built a whole coalition around this with folks at the Pentagon and folks at the, um, at the embassy in New Delhi and at the state department. And so when it came time to really pitch it, I, I was standing in front of a room of 40 admirals and generals. And I was the only woman in the room and the youngest by, you know, 20 years, which I think prepares me well for Congress right now. And and I said to them, you know, I, I pitched the strategy. And when I walked out, somebody said, Jessica, that took a lot of guts to stand up in front of those guys and talk about plants. <laughs> but I did it because it made it. Yeah, it made strategic sense. And it was the right thing to do. And um, and it was the right solution because we had taken the time to get to the depth of the problem and find a solution that would really work as opposed to just doing what we had done, you know, always before. And, um, and I think it's that type of innovative thinking that we've been often missing in, um, elected office, particularly in Congress and, and the willingness to get to the root of a problem and really solve, um, the deeper issue rather than just trying to solve the symptoms. So you've just described experiences that touch on national security expertise Global trade, you think about India and the role that countries like India are going to play in our economy going forward. I think your understanding there is huge. And climate change and bringing all of that into your district. Tell me about the problems that you want to see more innovative thinking on in your district. Yeah, our district is in a phenomenal part of Northern California. California. It includes Yosemite and Lake Tahoe. Um, it's the entire Sierra. My family's um, been in the Sierra for five generations. And, and it is just a, an incredible part of our district and of, of the country. And I would imagine a lot of your listeners, you know, have been out here. And um, what I find frustrating is that our current representative is very devoted to sort of a partisan ideology, often neglects um, the realities of what we're facing on the ground every day. Uh, you know, for example, my opponent is somebody who um, spends a lot of time pontificating about climate change not being real. And in reality, our district with the Tahoe ski industry and with wildfires, we are living the consequences every day of um, a changing environment. And we need to be able to mitigate those impacts on the ground and have use that to our advantage. You know, for example, I mean, these these aren't sort of existential threats in our district. I met a woman recently who had a... Um, a tree that had died from bark beetle pandemic, which is a big issue in this year. We have 160 million dead trees um, because it's not been cold enough in the winter to kill this beetle population off. And she told me that she couldn't afford the $1,000 to cut the tree down. And uh, the tree fell and it crushed her home. And then she moved into a trailer and the trailer was burned by a wildfire. And the communities in our district are, are finding that this is a clear and present danger injured to them every single day. And yet our member of Congress isn't actively finding ways to fight this. And instead he is saying, oh, it's, it, you know, he, he tweeted out, congratulations, POTUS, for pu pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. We have to support working families. And I said, wait, what about the working families in Tahoe that depend on our ski industry at a $5 billion a year ski industry as one of the largest employers in our district? 
And, and so we need proactive solutions to these challenges. And that's why I actually started, uh, before I even officially filed my campaign, I did a three-month listening tour of the district. I went to all 10 counties, met with county supervisors and Cal Fire chiefs, and discovered that the issues that we we're facing here, they're not partisan, um, but we are being impacted directly. You know, like a wildfire is not asking if you're a Republican or a Democrat before it burns down your home. But this is a district that is on fire as we speak, you know, and, and it impacts us on every level. And these wildfires compound and we need innovative solutions. And and I have heard amazing ideas and wonderful solutions and the challenges we're not getting the resources into them. A lot of it, we know what to do. We know that there are ways to um, prevent and mitigate forest fires by uh, creating jobs in our economy. You know, you go and thin the forest and return it to its natural healthy density. That actually improves the watershed. We need to restart small-scale logging again um, and and get that going. But the challenges, you're talking about global trade, It. I met a, I met a man recently in Sonora in the Sierra you know in the in the Sierra foothills who told me that his whole business was um milling beetle kill trees and shipping them to China which is amazing because there aren't many secondary markets for this uh this wood and and I said this is incredible I'm so excited how do we scale you up because he's solving a big problem for us and he said well we don't because the tariffs on China just um killed his mill and so it's crucial that we understand the direct impact on the ground for our community. And, you know, I've, I've heard amazing ideas about taking beetle kill wood and, um, and combining it with cattle manure, which uh, cattle manure is your greenhouse gas emitter. And when you combine it, um, it becomes a more stable compound. So it doesn't emit the methane and it becomes a compost that actually returns water and nutrients to our soil and, um, and is really good to put on the ground in post burn areas to prevent um, mudslides and help the forest regrow more quickly. And, uh, and North Face is on this. They um, have been buying wool um, from sh that's grown off from sheep that were grazing on um, grass from this compost. And they call it, um, I think they're calling it something like green wool. They say that one pound of wool takes six pounds of carbon out of the atmosphere. Wow. And so there are ways to revitalize our forest and restore our ecosystem that are actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere, but improving our economy and our community's health and safety. And and so I kind of stare blankly at my opponent and go, well, why wouldn't you support this? You know, it improves our economy. It improves the safety of our community and our health and welfare and our small businesses. I think that this creation of wedge issues has become so frustrating to observe. There's one going on in Ohio right now that that really frustrates me where it's like the candidates couldn't find any daylight. So they picked an issue that should be a good bipartisan, no brainer issue and made it a wedge issue. And it sounds like that's what's happened with climate change. And I love how you're talking about this in such a tangible way. I think a challenge with the Paris Accords, it feels like this really distant solution to a really present problem, right? But you're talking about really present solutions too. Exactly. I mean, I think that it's important to remember that this starts on the ground. You know, we have 5,000 solar jobs in our district and their people are hungry for more. If you look at the growth industries and the growth potential in our district, um, renewable energy is 
one of the biggest possibilities for job creation in our community. A lot of people are investing in um, biomass facilities because biomass facilities in our district are taking um, forest waste, you know, the chaparral, the manzanita, all the forest undergrowth that create these really hot wildfires um, that need to be taken out and that turns them into um, into energy and charcoal that you can use in uh, water treatment. Um, and and I've just heard tons of innovative ideas and, and good paying jobs in our district. You know, so if you, and, and the challenge I have is that people often say, um, well, how, how do you pay for this? And I always look at it through the lens of what are we paying by ignoring the problem? What's the cost of ignoring the problem? Um, and with wildfires, you know, California has already spent a billion dollars on fire suppression, just fighting these terrible fires that we've already had this summer. And um, and fire season is not over yet. And last year it was $2.4 billion for the whole fire season in California. So imagine if we had invested $500 million into fire prevention, which is cheap, you know, I mean, it, it, it a little goes a long way. I, was talking the Butte fire in Calaveras County in my district cost $72 million to contain. It only cost $2,000 to build the fire break outside of one of the towns that saved the town from the Butte fire. You know, investing in fire prevention and fire breaks and forest thinning is, um, is significantly less expensive than fighting the fires. And so making that forward investment saves us money. And that's where I get frustrated that a lot of this thinking stems from political cycles. I look at, um, politicians like Congressman McClintock, who I'm running against here, um, and he often is willing to make decisions that will save millions of dollars in the short run, but waste billions of our dollars over the long run. And I feel like it's that short-term thinking where you're thinking in terms of political cycles rather than in terms of centuries and generations that um, that is the political culture that needs to change. How is that message being received? You talked about a listening tour before you kicked off your campaign. What are the voters in your district really interested in, in addition to the the safety of the community based on environmental change? Yeah, we are, um, you know, people are concerned about issues that impact them. You know, I, I, my listening tour, I talked to um, conservative leaders throughout our district, and most of them told me that they were frustrated that they have these solutions to our challenges, whether it's infrastructure, access to broadband, um, improving rural health care. But what we've been missing is a partner and an advocate to break down the red tape in Washington and to bring resources back to our district to scale up these solutions. And I thought, okay, what we need is a partner. We need somebody who's willing to listen and understand the root of the problem and get to that. And um, and and that's been very well received. We have people across the political spectrum jumping on our campaign. Um, we have been out knocking on doors, making calls to voters nonstop. And and I'm finding that we have conservative moms and who are concerned about their kids' safety at school and um, Trump voters on board. You know, I got my dad's hunting and fishing buddies on board because they, they even showed up wearing Make America Great Again hats. And uh, and they said, they said, why would we support you? You're a Democrat. And I said, well, Congressman McClintock proposed the Save the Water Act that would lower the river level and kill off our salmon runs. And they all, you know, they all jumped in on the campaign and they're big supporters and sportsmen for Morse now. And and so it's about sort of understanding the real dynamics of our community. I mean, and our congressman has just 
been negligent on every level. I mean, for example, this is a district where we have 300,000 people with pre-existing conditions, you know, from asthma to cancer. And, and these are real issues that people are really concerned about. But Congressman McClintock voted for a bill that would take away health insurance from 300,000 people in our district. And he brushed it off. He said that pre-existing conditions, conditions were nuisances. And I thought not understanding that this is a life or death matter for most people in our district um, is just demonstrating that he's really out of touch with the community. But people are being receptive. I, I've been amazed. I, every, I do um, little house parties almost every night and events. Um, I just came, I just did a, a loop of the district uh, this weekend and, and hit, um, you know, all 10 counties and launched canvases throughout the district. And I've been finding that um, in most of my, uh, events, we have, you know, a good third of the room are conservatives, a third are, um, are independents and a third are Democrats. And, and it is, which is really the breakdown of the district. But what it tells us is that we're reaching the entire district because people are hungry for somebody to be an advocate for our real needs rather than playing partisan games. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. 
That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. It seems like partisanship is more than anything right now setting priorities so that we can't get to these real kinds of problems. We're sort of stuck in the most divisive issues. So I would love to hear when you get to Congress, after you've built relationships and, and kind of gotten yourself oriented, what do you see as the priorities that, that a Congress could get to um, early in your term? Um, there's some local issues and national issues that I want to work on, um, really quickly. I, one, I think we need to address some of the structural problems that are, that are exacerbating the partisanship, um, such as campaign finance reform is critical, gerrymandering, um, and voter access, because if our entire community doesn't have a voice or they're being drowned out, um, by large packs and special interest, then, um, then our democracy is no longer functioning. And, and so we need to tackle that sort of first, um, we need to absolutely ensure that people have access to high quality and affordable health care. I'm going to be very aggressive working on fire prevention because it's urgent and crucial. Um, I think this is a Congress that also needs to pass a comprehensive immigrate. Uh, uh, we need to pass comprehensive immigration, but um, we need to pass an infrastructure um, bill that will get us um, that will allow us to have our communities safe again. I think none of these are deeply controversial issues. I think they could get done quickly um, and and they will make a very big impact on the health and safety of our community. What do you see as a path forward on infrastructure? I struggle on this issue because I so believe that this is the economic stimulus we need. I think that infrastructure would have been a much better use of resources than this massive tax cut that just happened. But then I get sort of stuck in, I don't really think that means blacktop and guardrails for the long term. How can you envision an innovative approach to infrastructure that serves us well long term? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves what is what is our um, what what we are we need to invest in infrastructure that improves safety, right? So that's repairing bridges and roads. Like Highway 50 in my district collapsed last year. Like it's an interstate highway, it collapsed, um, and people were stuck and stranded. And we have mudslides coming over our rural roads a lot. We have people who are stuck every day at the Highway 6580 interchange in our district. Um, in traffic because we're not expanding it. And a lot of the challenges, we're not getting federal resources back. And so we're end up, we end up getting double taxed on infrastructure because it means that the state and um, counties have to find ways to raise the revenue to pay for it. And, and so I think we need to ask ourselves what investments in infrastructure will pay off dividends improve in terms of improving health and safety and also improving our economy. So I think that also means infrastructure like access to broadband in our rural districts. We don't have um, 
broadband in a lot of our uh, communities. And what's ironic is that um, we had actually laid down the infrastructure in underneath Highway 80 um, back in the early 90s and enough broadband fiber optic cable to actually power the entire Sierra. But then we haven't put in the um, the grants that will allow us to do those last mile connections and actually connect the Sierra to the infrastructure that's in place. And, and so those are simple investments that are um, going to make a huge impact because our rural hospitals don't have access to telemedicine and our economy, people aren't buying homes here and they're not um, starting up small businesses here because we don't have reliable internet. Um, and also transit is a huge issue. I think about people, um, if you know, if anybody knows the Bay Area, people get, come up to Tahoe all the time and they could just get stuck in gridlock traffic from San Francisco all the way up to Tahoe. It can take, um, it, you know, adds hours onto a trip. And uh, whereas there is, there is room for a second track for a train up and through the Sierra. And, and it was Sierra Pacific owns the right of way. They actually pulled up the second rail and sold it for scrap metal because they were paying too much in taxes for having the rail. Like these are the type of issues that we need to ask ourselves, okay, what do we already have in place? What can we build on top of? And we would have a huge advantage if we had a passenger train going up to Tahoe. You know, I think public transit really pays off dividends for communities. Um, and then in rural districts where like the dis the counties that are outside of Yosemite and Lake Tahoe, they um, they get funding for their roads based on vehicle registration right now. So in Mariposa County, for example, they have 18,000 cars um, registered, which is what's determining what level of income they get for um, their roads. But they have five million people a year going into Yosemite National Park driving on their roads. And so they're not recuperating the costs from the actual usage. And um, and finally, with infrastructure, it's important that we remember that it's cheaper to replace if you're even if you're when you're doing blacktop replacements, you know, that it's cheaper to replace it um, when before it wears down through the, the initial layers. Because once you start, if you have to replace the entire road versus just the surface, um, it's much more expensive. And so it's cheaper for us to stay on top of our infrastructure and keep things in good repair than it is for us to let it fall into disrepair and have much more expensive um, uh, repairs down the line. Yeah, that what how do we pay for it question always makes me think, do you want to do you want to pay for it now or do you want to pay lots more later with lives and the dollars to clean up a disaster? And that kind of takes me back to I would like to end with national security, kind of where we started. I would love to know where you see our most present threats and what you think Congress should be doing to deal with those threats. Well, my background was in nuclear and on proliferation and um one of the things that I'm not often, you know, we, we are often talking about sort of the very obvious threats of um, Russia targeting our democracy and um, China building stronger relationships in Asia because we don't have trade partnerships with them right now. And so um, America being kind of pushed off the global stage. Um, but one of the things that deeply concerns me is that the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty is coming up for review again in 2020. And um, that has been sort of the foundation and fundamental to the global order um, as and and one of the foundations of global stability in the last um, half century, in the last, you know, since the 1950s. And, and so with, with that coming under review, and with America not clearly prioritizing nuclear nonproliferation 
I am worried and America sort of losing our voice and our credibility at the table. I am worried that um, we will end up in a situation where uh, we don't have a checks and balances and a nuclear nonproliferation order anymore. And, and, and we'll see countries getting nuclear weapons and that will destabilize um, how our globe is functioning. I mean, for me, this is a bit dark, but it, when I look at the geopolitical landscape today, it looks very similar to the geopolitical landscape we had before World War One. you know, with a lot of um, regional ethnic fights bringing in larger regional powers and then bringing in international powers. We're seeing this in Syria. We're seeing this in Iraq. Um, and so if you superimpose nuclear weapons over that um, and have the nuclear order that we have in place now disappearing um, and have it be a bit of a free-for-all, you know, that that would just spiral into global chaos. And, and so I think it needs careful navigation. It needs real diplomacy. It needs um, credibility and trust. And I think the biggest thing that we need to work on when the 2018 Congress gets in is rebuilding the global trust um, with between America and the world, that we can be seen as reliable, we can be seen as a country that stands up and, and keeps to our word, um, and that if somebody negotiates something with us, we stick with it, um, and and that build, rebuilding the trust that uh, and America's trust in the world is going to be crucial to having us navigate a very difficult geopolitical landscape that is facing us right now, because having started my career in a war zone I don't want us to go back to war. My mission at my core is to try to figure out how to keep America's troops at home. And that means preventing conflict and investing in preventing conflict. And unfortunately, right now, what we're seeing um, with America's, with our administration is exactly the opposite, you know, defunding the State Department and uh, USAID and um, going back on global compacts and and being an unreliable partner in the globe and unpredictable. And that is a recipe for disaster that our troops are going to have to pay for. And I want to prevent that. Tell our listeners how they can support your campaign, Jessica. We would be thrilled. Um, we are California's fourth congressional district. You can go on our website, morseforcongress.com, M-O-R-S-E, the number four, congress.com. And um, so we need all the financial support we can get. We've outraised the incumbent. We're now on national lists as a red to blue targeted race. And Emily's list and League of Conservation Voters, even endorsed by Steve Schmidt, who was John McCain's campaign manager. So regardless of your political affiliation, we need your help. And we're getting our TV the ads up on the air this week and so need folks to um, invest in our race and then come out and canvas if you feel like taking a vacation to save our democracy um, come out to Yosemite or Lake Tahoe or Roseville California and come out and knock on doors and make calls and we would be thrilled um, to have your help and support because uh, we can win it's just going to take all hands on deck and we're on track so thanks for your support well thank you so much for spending time with us I hope you become a frequent guest as representative Morse because I could talk to you for hours about all these topics I love your focus on problem solving and we just really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Beth. Really a pleasure to be here. And I'm just so grateful that you guys bring this really nuanced perspective to our political discussion. Thank you for joining us for Beth's interview. We're hoping everybody feels a little more uplifted at this point in the ball game. And we will be back in your ears on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pansy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. 
Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.